it is not about saving the planet. So often we're told to save the planet, save the whale, save the this, save the that. The planet will be orbiting the sun long after we are gone. It is about us. It is about us humans, our civilization, and a lot of other living things on this planet. That is who is at stake here. And when we realize that, it immediately tackles the biggest problem we have, which is psychological distance. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, as always. And on this show, I have conversations with all kinds of amazing humans that have two things in common. They give a damn and they're striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up. I'm incredibly glad you're here. My guest this week is the truly amazing Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine juggles many titles and responsibilities, and here are just a few. She is an atmospheric scientist. She is the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy. She is the Paul Whitfield Horn Distinguished Professor and the Political Science Endowed Chair in Public Policy and Public Law in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech. She is the Associate in the Public Health Program at the same school, and she is the Principal Investigator for the Department of Interior's South Central Climate Adaptation Science Center and the National Science Foundation's Global Infrastructure Climate Network. I don't know about you, but I need a nap after reading those titles, and I didn't even mention all of them. I wanted to have Catherine on to talk about her new book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. I don't know about you, but I need some hope and some healing. The actor Don Cheadle described the book like this. Catherine shares an optimistic outlook on what we can all do to move the needle toward solutions and invite allies under the big tent. I found the same to be true when I read the book. It's quite possibly the most unifying thing I have ever read about our climate crisis. We all inevitably know someone or many someones that don't believe that we're fucking up the climate and that we need to unfuck it in the months and years ahead. This book is our guide to bring more and more people along as we try to leave the planet much better than we found it. Catherine is a wonderful human, so fun to talk to, and you're in for a treat. Also, after you listen to this conversation, please call your local bookstore and buy her book. You need this one on your bookshelf ASAP. Before we jump into this beautiful conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Let's go. It's an absolute pleasure to have Dr. Catherine Hayhoe here with us on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Doctor, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, you have been, I really do appreciate you taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy. You've been hitting all the big shows over the last few weeks, talking about your book. You were on Kimmel two weeks ago. You're on Let's Give a Damn today. All the big shows. That's right. Um, Obviously, I'm joking. Uh, Kimmel has a different level of audience, but I really do appreciate you coming on to talk about these incredibly important uh, issues. And you're tackling it from a different perspective. I've had other people addressing the climate on the show uh, talk about it in different ways. So I'm real excited to have you on. Before we get into the meat of the conversation, um, talk about your how did you get to this place, right? Because you're Canadian living in Texas. It's been a long journey to get to that place. Give us a, a few minutes about who you are, where you've come from so that we can get uh, yeah, a little bit of sense of how you ended up talking about these things in this kind of work in this sort of big way right now. Sure. So my life story in two minutes. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Or take as long as you want, but I know we we have a lot to get to. So oh, okay, okay. It it could fill the whole hour, but in brief, um, I am a climate scientist. I study what climate change means to us here and now in ways that are relevant. So often people think it's about the polar bears in Antarctica, and of course, climate change is affecting the polar bears and Antarctica, but it's affecting us too, right where we live. And although most people are worried about it, 
70% of people in the US are worried about climate change. The numbers are higher in the UK, Canada, Australia, and beyond. But most of us still think it's an issue for the future, not now, or for people over there rather than here. So I was originally planning to study astrophysics, and that's what my undergraduate degree is in. When I needed an extra class to fulfill my breadth requirements, and I looked over and found this, you know, brand new, interesting looking class on climate change. I thought, why not take it? So I did. Sure. And I was completely shocked to learn there that climate change is no longer a future issue. It is already here and now. Action is incredibly urgent. And what forever changed the trajectory of my life, climate change is not only an environmental issue. Climate mm. change is a health issue. It's an economic issue, it's a resource issue, it's a national security issue, but most of all, climate change disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. The people who already live below a dollar or two a day, who already struggle to feed their family or have a safe place to live. The 3.5 billion poorest people in the world have contributed to 7% of the climate problem, and that is profoundly unfair. And so that's what made me decide, well, I have to do everything I can to help fix this problem because it is so urgent and it is so unfair. We need to fix it because if we don't, we can't fix anything else. Climate change is, as the military calls it, a threat multiplier. It takes all of the other issues that we have, issues of health, of justice, of equity, economic issues, immigration issues, safety and security issues. It takes every other issue we're worried about and it makes it worse. It's like the hole in the bucket. If we want to fill that bucket to fix a problem, something that's wrong with this world, climate change is the hole and it has to be patched or else we'll never fix anything else. That's exactly. So climate is, is the big issue in our family as well for all the reasons you just mentioned and more. And we tackle it from a variety of different angles, but that's been my thinking. And even as I've grown, let's give a damn. And as we're figuring out, you know, what is let's give a damn going to focus on? I know we're, we're telling stories of all kinds, but what are we going to give to and donate to and partner with? And climate always is at the top of the list because of the very things you just mentioned. If we, we can focus on, you know, infant mortality, we can focus on, you know, hunger, we can focus on water. We can focus on name criminal legal system, uh, you know, abolishing prisons, whatever it is. But if we don't have a habitable climate, we have nothing. We have jack shit. We might as well just because it you can't you can have lots of food and lots of money and no prisons and an amazing police force and all these things. But if you can't live in your climate, it's it's all for naught. It's, and it's so, moot, exactly. And climate yeah. change exacerbates racism. It exacerbates gender inequality. And let me just give you one horrifying example. Yesterday was the International Day of the Girl. And one of the reasons we're most concerned about climate change, just one of dozens, like you said, and hundreds of reasons, is because it even exacerbates the risk of child marriages in some of the poorest countries in the world. Every three minutes, a girl under the or as young as eight is married off. And in a like, take the country of Malawi. They outlawed child marriages in 2015. So you have to be 18 years old to get married. And so child marriages were declining until when? until the impacts of climate change on drought and crop harvests and water availability started to hit. And when a family can't even feed all the members of their family and someone comes along and offers to marry one of the daughters, that's often what happens. And so child marriages are going back up. So just like you said so perfectly, whatever we care about, whatever is at the top of our list, whether it's um, justice or prisons or malaria or poverty or anything, climate change affects every single one of those. And that means that who we are is already the perfect person to care. In fact, we already care about climate change because it affects every one of those things. Yeah, again, you and you so perfectly said it there. I think our, our conversation is very timely. Again, I'm always thinking about these things, but especially this week uh, in Scotland right now, the TED Countdown Summit is starting. Uh, hundreds of experts, activists, industry leaders gathering from around the world to talk about the climate and how we're running out of time. And, and it truly is... This is this. I find it so perplexing because I feel exactly the same way you do. We have to focus on this. We have to talk about it. Everyone already cares about it, but why doesn't it look like we care about it? And it just feels so perplexing walking around all day. I live in New York City, so there's a lot of people. There's a lot of things happening, and it feels like 
yes, if I go online, everybody's talking about the climate. If I have conversations with you and read the book and it feels like it's this big issue, but then out there with everybody, it doesn't feel like everyone, anyone gives a shit. And in the way that, in the ways that we're living, in the ways that we're not living, the things that we're doing, not doing the things that we're speaking up about, not speaking up about. And so again, I think this is very timely for a lot of reasons. Um, Before we get into your book, uh, let me just, I want to rattle off a few of your credentials. Not that anyone needs to know these things, but you're involved in a lot of things. Uh, I, I don't know if I, I said we've had lots of conversations around the climate, but never with someone more qualified than yourself. So let me just read these off for the people listening. You're the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy. You are the Paul Whitfield Horn Distinguished Professor and the Political Science Endowed Chair in Public Policy and Public Law. That is a mouthful in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech, which is where you live, right? Lubbock, Texas, in and around there. Uh, you are the principal investigator for the Department of Interior's South Central Climate Adaptation Science Center and the National Science Foundation's Global Infrastructure Climate Network. And those are just a few. I described a few of the things that you're involved in or the titles that you bear. Um, do you feel you're writing this book? It's out. You are working on all these different programs, doing all these different things. How are you doing? Before we start with in the book, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Do you feel good about what's happening? Do you feel about good about the things that you're doing? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel like we're going to make it? I love that question because you've totally personalized it. So over the last four or five years, the number one question that I've gotten from almost anyone, anywhere, and I get this question now pretty much every day is, what gives you hope? And that's why I wrote the book, Saving Us. But I love how you turn that around and you're like, how are you feeling? <laughs> and you are right. It is a roller coaster for all of us because when we look this issue in the face, when we understand that what is at stake is the future of our civilization as we know it, not in our grandchildren's lifetime, but in our lifetime, that is what is at stake. It is natural to be absolutely petrified. And that's often what people are, you know, like I said, 70% of us in the U.S. alone are already worried. 80, I think it's 83 or 84% of young people in 10 different countries they surveyed around the world are are worried about this. Yeah. Who wouldn't be? That is a natural reaction. The question is, what do we do with that? Because worry can be the wellspring of action. To quote Joan Baez, the antidote to despair is action. But so often, here's where we're stuck, Nick. We're stuck in not knowing what to do. So I'm pretty sure that the reason why we don't talk about it very much, a new survey just came out a couple of weeks ago showing that only 14% of us in the U.S. talk about it. The reason we don't talk about it very much, the reason why we don't see people doing stuff. 70% believe it's it's something that we should be tackling. They're worried about it. 14% talking about it. Exactly. That's insane. That's a hugely bigger gap than the gap between the people who say the science isn't real. But yet we often focus on that gap as if more science will convince them. It won't. You know why they're in denial? Same reason. They don't think we can fix it. But if I say, oh, sure, it's a real problem and every scientist agrees and it affects the poorest and most vulnerable people, but I don't want to fix it, that makes us a bad person. And so that's where denial comes from. So all across the spectrum... The vast majority of us, although it manifests in different ways and different symptoms, the vast majority of us don't think we can fix it. And that's why we're stuck. Yeah. Okay. So let's, we're going to continue to talk about these things as we go through the book, because I want to focus on the book. It's so fantastic for those just listening. I'm holding up a copy here, but you need to get it immediately, if not sooner. Uh, My dad always said that growing up. That doesn't make any sense immediately, if not sooner, but I still say it now that I'm in my thirties immediately, if not sooner, just basically go get the damn book. Um, Okay. So we've got saving us, which again, I want to, once I read the subtitle, I want to go back to saving us. Cause I think that's a very, again, I don't, I I've read lots of climate books, none like this. So saving us a climate scientist case for hope and healing in a divided world. So we're talking about the climate, but the title of your book says saving us. So obviously I think this is a nod to, and you've already addressed it. We're more polarized than ever. And we've got 70% of people that's in, and because it's 70%, we know that that's, those are right and left conservative, liberal, Democrat, conservative. The majority of people are concerned about this, but just a fraction, 
a sixth of the people are actually talking about it. So talk about, let's talk about the title first, and then I want to get into the uh, sections and we'll walk through the sections, have you talk a couple minutes about each section because it's very beautifully laid out. Again, I go from, when I read this book, I go from feeling, what the hell are we doing? And I'm an action-oriented person. I am known for this. If, if there's a problem, I go after it. There's no talking about it without doing it. Even if I end up messing up, this is who Nick is. It, but I still start the book with a lack of hope because of just what's going on around us. And I leave thinking, yeah, we can do this. I think we can actually do this. So saving us, the title, talk, talk to me about why you chose that. Yes. So saving us is deliberately chosen to refer to the fact that it is not about saving the planet. So often we're told to save the planet, save the whale, save the this, save the that. The planet will be orbiting the sun long after we are gone. It is about us. It is about us humans, our civilization, and a lot of other living things on this planet. That is who is at stake here. And when we realize that, it immediately tackles the biggest problem we have, which is psychological distance. We, we often feel as if we're, we're asked to choose between our comfortable lifestyle or our economy or the things we do in our life and the planet. Choose between yeah. our life and the planet. Well, right. we can't orbit around in outer space without the resources this planet provides. There is no life. There is no economy. There is no nothing without this planet. So where did the subtitle come from? A case for hope and healing in a divided world. Well, the book is really about more than climate. It's about the fact that we are more divided than ever today. We can't seem to come to agreement on anything. Simple things like vaccines and masks and how to treat people and how to have a civil dialogue. And climate change is today and has been over the last 10 years one of the most politically polarized issues in the whole country. So the book is really about if we can come together, identify common ground and sensible solutions to the number one most politically polarized issue, what else might we be able to fix along the way? Yeah, that's really beautiful. So just again, so people have a little more context on you before we jump in the book. You are Canadian, living in Texas. You are an evangelical Christian, married to a pastor. and you're all of the titles that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, so you have been, you, you don't come from this country. You're in this country now and you're living in, um, <laughs> it's funny. I was, I was interviewing Adrian Grenier, the actor a couple, couple weeks ago. And he, uh, very kindly rebuked me because a lot of times when I get going, I'm an Enneagram eight. I, uh, am very passionate. I get very angry about things that I think could be fixed. Climate is one of them, right? Like I, I think we can work on this and we're not, I get very angry. I get very like passionate about things. And I started to go off a little bit in our conversation about, you know, Texas and people living in the South. And why do you like, cause he left New York city, which to me is the greatest city in the world. And it's like, you left a lifetime in New York city to go live at where in Texas. And, you know, and we lived four years in Nashville before this. So, um, I start out, I, I, I have my natural reaction to people that don't have to live in the South, but do is I jest and joke, but some of the best people, when I, you know, once he rebuked me and I, you know, and I pulled back a little bit and I start thinking about my relationships with people I know, some of the best people I know, literally some of the best people on the planet live in these places where um, there are a variety of, of, of backgrounds when it comes to belief about the climate, about it's not, in other words, it's a very mixed group of people living in these places. And Texas is this humongous state with so many different kinds of people and so many different ways of thinking and living. So I want to just point that out that you're not, you know, you're not, you and I probably I don't know, maybe we'll have another conversation at some point. We'll talk about more uh, different topics. Like maybe we don't agree on a lot of things, Uh, but you, so I I wanted to make it clear that you're not living on the coast, you know, this liberal elite living on the coast, just speaking to, you know, preaching to the choir, speaking from a bubble. You are living in a state that is feeling very much the effects of climate change, right? Very much feeling the effects of our climate crisis. There was a winter storm this past year um, that took, you know, took a power grid out 
and people died from this, right? That's not classic Texas weather thing. Like shit's happening there. And so I just wanted to point that out. This is, this is the context in which you live. You know, it's not maybe the context that where most climate scientists live and work, right? No, you're totally right. In fact, I, when I moved here 15 years ago, I was the only climate scientist within a 200 mile radius. And I believe I still am. Insane. And Lubbock, Texas is the, according to at least one survey, the second most politically conservative city in the whole country after Provo, Utah. And I've spoken at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah too. And so my feeling is, is if we can talk about climate change here, we can talk about it anywhere. And it isn't a case of people not agreeing. Often we don't talk about it because we don't know what to do about it and who wants to have yet another depressing conversation. So I think you're totally right. Living in Texas is the perfect place to be for what I do. And this is where the book came from. Because Texas is the most vulnerable state in the country to the impacts of climate change. Climate change is loading our weather dice against us. In fact, that's why I often call it global weirding rather than global warming. It's increasing the risk of everything from our droughts and our hurricanes to our crazy winter storms. There was even a human fingerprint on that winter storm due to a warming Arctic. Texas is home to the oil and gas industry, but Texas cities are leading the way with climate action, including the city of Houston, San Antonio, Austin, and more. Texas has so much wind and solar energy potential, it could supply the whole country with electricity if it truly chose to. It's number one in wind, it's number two in solar, but it's climbing quickly. And in fact, the biggest solar uh, farm in, in the US is being built just outside of Dallas. Yet in Texas, people are so politically polarized about this issue. So this is the perfect place to be having these conversations. But if we can have them here, we can have them everywhere, even in New York City, right? Yes. Yeah, two great points. If it can happen in Texas, those conversations can happen there. It can happen literally anywhere because that place is crazy sometimes. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that God and, and life and, you know, have put you in that position where you can speak with such authority because you're living, as you pointed out, the second most politically conservative city in the entire country. That's quite the, that's quite the stat to hold. That's quite the position to hold. Okay. So let's, let's get into the book a little bit. you I love the dedication. As soon as you open the book, it says to everyone searching for realistic hope in a fragmented world. I love that. Like, cause that's what I, as a hardcore Enneagram eight, always like just angry about everything that's wrong and how can we fix it? I am constantly searching for hope because I know that I need to I need to get better at that. I need to get better at holding on to hope because if I truly believe, if I'm truly going to, you know, lead this small movement called let's give a damn, well, I have to believe that it can't just be just grit and determination. There has to be hope involved that we can actually accomplish this, whatever this is, right? Fill in the blank, whatever the issue is. And especially with climate, I have to believe that we can turn things around. And so I love that that dedication, that affirmation right there at the beginning. Um, Section one, the problem and the solution. I think we've talked about that a little bit. Um, So let's just, unless you have something to say there, I'd love to move on to section two. And again, we're just doing this in a couple, I I don't want to spend too much time in the book because I want people to go out and buy it. It's a substantial book. It's like 300 pages. It's really, really, you know, incredible. So let's go on to section two, which is why facts matter and they, and why they aren't enough. This one is so important to me because I'm such a fact like machine. I, 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 I learn, I memorize, I embody these facts and the data so that I can talk about things intelligently. I don't just want to be, you know, I don't want to be an, um, you know, an inch deep on these topics. Right. But even this past year, you've talked about with the vaccines and the masks and all these things, facts don't mean shit in today's environment. You could be talking actual facts and the person blurting complete falsehoods blurts them as if they are facts. So talk about why facts matter. It's true. They do matter, but why they aren't enough. You are so right. We have seen this come true in spades. And in the book, of course, I mentioned COVID and and masks and things like that because the parallels are undeniable. But of course, facts matter because they explain how the world works. You can say, I don't believe in gravity, but if you step off the cliff, you are going down. You can say vaccines don't work, but when we look at the statistics of who's hospitalized, they overwhelmingly work. work. So we can say whatever we want, but our opinion does not contradict 
the laws of physics and medicine and everything that explains how this world functions. Yet today, more facts will often not change people's minds on very politically polarized and contentious issues. So here's the difference. If somebody came along with new facts on a black hole, you might say, oh, that's interesting, sure. We might not understand it, but we're not going to challenge them and say that they're in the pay of big telescope or, you know, they're trying to subvert our personal liberties, right? Yeah, right. But then if we come along with information about climate change or COVID, all of a sudden we're doing it for some nefarious reason or something like that. What's the difference? The difference is that there's an implication for personal action. That's Mm. the difference. If we learn something new about black holes, there's nothing to do with that. But if we learn that climate change is real, it's serious, and it requires action immediately, and if we learn that vaccines work but only if enough people take them, then we know that we have a role to play. And that's where our defense mechanisms activate. Because today, climate change, COVID, issues like racial justice and immigration as well, those are the most politically polarized issues in the whole U.S. And believe me, I'm from Canada. I see them in Canada too, the U.K., Australia, and more. Right, So how did they get polarized? I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to reject 200 years of physics that scientists have known since the 1800s. That's literally how long we've known that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil produces heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing it to warm. It is not rocket science. It's the same physics that explains how stoves heat food and how airplanes fly. And, you know, on the internet, you can find everything, but there's not a lot of people who would say that stoves literally don't heat food and airplanes literally don't fly. It's just a global conspiracy. So, So what do we wake up and do? We wake up and we go to social media And we go through the feeds of the people who think the same way we do, who have the same values, the same life experience, and we see what they're saying. We listen to politicians and pundits and commentators and podcasts by people who feel the same way we do, who come from the same background we do. And as cognitive misers, you're a great example of somebody who's not a cognitive miser, but most of us are. So rather than research something ourselves, we just listen to the opinion that other people have. And then we use our giant brain, so to speak, to go out and find the reasons explaining why we're right. We don't use our brain to figure out what the right answer is. We decide that based on our tribe and then we just justify it. So how do we, so so much there, but we have limited time today. Um, So let's just, let's spend a second on this idea of one thing that we've heard a ton of this past year in relation to COVID, but it applies to a lot of different topics, police brutality to climate, to everything else. People saying, do your own research. That is one of the most infuriating statements to me because it undermines the fact that people like yourself, I didn't even, I didn't, I read through some of your current like titles, but I didn't read a lot of your credentials. I didn't read where you've gone to school, the amount of time you spent learning and the amount of time that you spend still now that you're, you know, you've been out of school for some time, you're still every day in it, like learning and learning that undermines, it undermines all the work you've done for someone to go on the internet find an article that they already sort of agree with, then go find their favorite, like, you know, podcast host or their favorite, like afternoon show host or somebody out there writing an opinion piece on some stupid, whatever that confirms their bias. And now they qualify themselves as someone who can speak intelligently on the subject when they've spent a grand total of 27 and a half minutes reading in in a malinformed article on the subject. So how do we, again, facts matter, but they're not enough. I totally am into this idea, but we've got this like more than ever because the internet and because of social media and because of how things travel, we have people out there that are not intelligent at all. And I'm not saying, I'm saying left and right. I'm not speaking to one or the other. We have people on the left and right reading an article or two, and now, you know, fancying themselves experts on the subject. How do we rely on facts? How do we point to um, experts while also, yeah, just remaining in a perpetual state of learning and humility as we learn about these big, big topics that are way over my head? Well, you're totally right. I mean, I was just talking with my cousin the other day and she was saying how she was talking with a friend who was saying that she'd done all her research on vaccines. And my cousin said, where? And she said, Instagram. I have a colleague at my own university, Ashley Landrum at Texas Tech. She's found that YouTube 
is primarily responsible for the dissemination of the flat earth conspiracy theory. People are doing their research by watching YouTube videos. We live in an area where, an era where as Isaac Asimov said so presciently back in the 1980s, he said, people believe that my opinion is as valid as your data. But again, unfortunately it isn't because physics is physics. The way the world works is the same, no matter where we live. And when we make decisions based on false information, which we can access at our fingertips now, that information is not created by social media, but it is disseminated by social media at a scale that is unprecedented. And false information, thanks to our human psychology, travels faster than truth. They've even studied it. MIT researchers found that on Twitter, false information gets spread six times faster and further than factual information. And, you know, the quotes attributed to Mark Twain, you know, the a lie can circle the world where the truth is still getting its boots on. It's human psychology and social media has amplified our basic tendency today to where anybody can find anything online claiming anything. So how do we combat that? It's important to know what the truth is. And I say that in the book. But dumping an avalanche of facts on people is not going to change their mind. It's going to make them shut off. The neuroscience even shows this. It's how our brain is wired. Rather than starting from the head, we need to start from a different place in our body, the heart. Mm. Start with what we have in common, something we agree on, something we share. Connect the dots to how climate change is affecting something we both care about. And always, 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 and this is so important, bring in one or more positive, constructive solutions to tackle the fear that overwhelms all of our discussions on this issue. Talk about something we are doing ourselves or something surprising that our community is doing, a company could be doing, an organization, a city, a business, a church, a group of young people, a group of senior citizens, the Rotary Club. There are all kinds of amazing examples to basically communicate this image. The image that climate action, climate solutions, this better future, is not a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of an impossibly steep hill with only a few hands on it. And if we add our hand, it will not budge an inch. That is the image we all have. And so if that's the case, why put my hand on the boulder? Why strain every muscle I have, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, when it isn't going to move the boulder a single millimeter, let alone an inch? The actual fact, though, is that boulder is at the top of the hill. And that boulder is already rolling down the hill in the right direction. And that boulder already has millions of hands on it. And if I add my hand to a boulder that's moving, it will go a tiny bit faster. If I use my voice to bring my company along board with me, my neighborhood, my city, if I unite together with others and we get a larger group of us all putting our hands on that boulder, we can see it moving faster. That is the only thing that has ever changed our modern industrialized society before is when ordinary people decided it could and it must change and they used their voices to advocate for change. But what we're most lacking right now is efficacy. We need to understand that if we do something, it can make a difference. And how it all starts is by using our voice. I love that so much. The the boulder analogy, I'm going to use that. I'm going to borrow that. I'll attribute it to you. Please do. But that but that is so that's so incredibly helpful because as I have these conversations, without a doubt, the number one thing that I always the, the number one place where the conversation usually stops is the person, the recipient of this dialogue. What difference am I going to make? Like me composting, recycling, solar panels, you know, get the electric car, whatever, all the things that we're trying to do, right? All the little things that we're doing, no straws, the million, the million ways that we've been offered to, you know, fight this climate crisis. It just feels like if, but if I don't do that, nothing changes, not a thing changes. And the truth is, that's not the way to look at it at all. There's already so many of us acting millions, hundreds of millions around the world. Just because we're not seeing it happen doesn't mean it's not happening. And, you know, I was talking with, I I did a conversation with another climate activist, scientist, professor, uh, Robert Frank. um, And, and he, he talked about how there, you know, this study of like solar panels. And he was talking about how one person, you know, put the solar, nobody else in the neighborhood had solar panels. 
and they put solar panels. It's the right thing to do. Like they could afford to, and it's obviously a luxury and a beautiful thing that, you know, only certain people can do at this point. It'll be more widely available in the future, but they put solar panels on their home, one person. And then it was only a certain amount of time before, and I forget the amount of time, but it was, okay, then someone else got it, right? It's this idea of peer pressure. It's the idea of if I out loud, you know, in front of people begin to make these changes, the only reason they're not doing it is they don't see enough people doing it. But everybody's doing it in secret or not enough or not out loud or not in front of people. And we've just got to begin getting out of that, not seeing it as us pushing the boulder up the friggin' mountain and just start doing it out loud, right? Doing it in front of people. And we positively peer pressure each other into doing it across political lines, across uh, socioeconomic lines. We can all do this together, right? Totally. I mean, that's what's called social contagion in a good way rather than the bad way. And that is what changes the world, is that idea of these changes literally being contagious. In my book, I talk about how they've even studied that if the number one predictor of whether someone will get solar panels in a neighborhood where people could afford it, and you can get loans these days that are equal to your power bill, so you don't have to be high income to get them anymore. It's yeah. if it's if someone else lives within a, about a mile of your house, and so we started we started a cluster here where I live, um, and we see this changing. Amazing. But here's the difference: the difference is that you don't go around knocking on your neighbor's door saying, "Why don't you have solar panels? Yeah. You must be a horrible person. You're so irresponsible. Don't you know the Arctic is melting? Don't you know the polar bears could get extinct? Why that is not the way to do it. The way to do it is like, look at these solar panels. I'm so happy. They're awesome. Here's what our power bill looks like. I even got a plug-in car, so now I don't have to go to the gas station anymore during COVID. I love doing that. Don't you hate you have to like wipe off your hands and everything? That's the way it gets contagious. Rather yeah. than wagging judgy, guilt-filled fingers at people, which people do every single time, especially on so social media, but they do it in person too, that does not change the world. Yet that's what we do because it's another fear-based reaction. So from fear, we have denial. From fear, we have paralysis. From fear, we have self-silencing, all of these unhealthy behaviors. But from fear, we also have guilting. And guilting yeah. is the most insidious one because it makes us feel temporarily better at the expense of someone else. It is a zero-sum game. And you know what? It's addictive. We have to keep go doing it to keep feeling better and better. And the more we do it to other people, the less they want to be part of the solution. It's like, join the new green cult and be miserable like me. No, thank you. I would rather eat, drink, and be merry if we're all going to die anyways and it's too late. The whole world going vegan is not going to fix the problem. I'm sorry, I'm a climate scientist. I've calculated it. It isn't. It's going to fix not even 10% of the problem. Not even 10%. Yeah. Does that mean our diet isn't important? No. Of course our diet is one of 100 solutions that we need changed. But the big picture is this. 90 companies, 90 fossil fuel, oil, gas, and coal companies are responsible for two-thirds of carbon emissions since the dawn of the industrial era. 20 wow. meat and dairy companies are responsible for 55% of emissions from the food industry. You know, a handful of banks are responsible for trillions of dollars of funding to the fossil fuel industry. This is a justice issue. It's an equity issue. It's a system issue. The system can and must change. But the only way systems have changed in the past was not when abolitionists freed their slaves and refused to eat sugar. Did they free their slaves? Yes. Did they refuse to eat sugar? Yes. Was that what overturned slavery? No. What overturned slavery was when they used their voices to advocate for the change that they lived out in their lives at a greater scale. That's what changes the world. Amazing. So, I mean, if, if we could, if we could really, if we could really encapsulate the whole book, and I don't want to rush through it, but we are, you know, we 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 do have a time frame coming up. It is to, it is that the most important. If there could be one banner, is it this that? The most important thing we can start doing right now is just start talking about it, right? There are obviously, like you pointed out, which, you know, we're vegan and we do it for mostly climate reasons. But as you just said, even if the whole world, the whole planet went vegan, we're still not fixing the damn thing. It's a part of it. It's a part of it in a, in a vital part of it, I think. Yes. But it's not everything. Right. Right. And so that feels, you know, you said there's a, it's, it's one of a hundred things. So even that just feels so big. But it's, it's always going to feel big until we start talking about it. 
It's got to be a central part of, because you just pointed out, which I, I think is so fantastic. And you said it at the beginning as well. Climate is not just about cl climate. There is racism in climate, in the climate conversation. There is uh, social inequality in the climate conversation. There is everything. If you take most issues out there, you talk about child brides at the beginning. Like it is, this is, if we can make the climate a central part of what we're talking about and how we want to impact and change the world, we're also by proxy addressing a lot of other issues in the world. So this has to be front and center, correct? Completely. If we don't fix this, we can't fix anything else. And so the way I put it is, is um, that often we have the impression, again, that climate change is on our priority list. For most of us, it is on our priority list somewhere. It might be number 82. It might be number 51. It might be 22. It might be 12. Right. And but along come the climate scientists, the activists, the advocates, and they're trying to push it up. And we're like, okay, I'm trying to push it up. But look, my family is, you know, we've got health issues. Um, you know, I'm struggling to keep my job. I can't afford, you know, an electric car. Um, you know, we, we, we can't get it up to number one. Well, here's what I have to say. And I say this as a climate scientist. I don't think climate change needs to be on anyone's priority list at all. Not at all. Take it off. Take it off 100%. Put it over here on the other side. Why? Because the only reason we care about it is because of what is number one, number two, number three, number four on your list. Your family, your kids, your health, the place right. you live, the places you love, the things you love, the people you love, the things that you need to live, water, air, food, a safe place. All of these things are the reason we care. And so the bottom line is simply this. To care about climate change, we only have to be one thing. And that one thing is literally a human being living on this planet. And if you are that, then you do care. And if you don't think you do, you simply have not connected the dots between numbers one, two, three, four, five at the top of your priority list. And in my book, I, I talk about, I don't care. It could be baseball that's at the top of your priority list. I can connect that to climate impacts and solutions. It could be beer or wine at the top of your priority list. I can connect that. It could be your health. It could be justice. It could be equity. It could be the place you live. It could be your job. I don't care what it is. If it is on this planet, it is being affected by climate change today. So flipping good. Okay, let's talk about d demeanor for a second. Is there ever, so you're full of hope, right? Uh, very positive and, and, and I'm, I'm on board with it. Is there ever a place for, um, for lack of a better term, angry, like, what the hell is going on? Why aren't we doing this sort of outburst? And it kind of like, I guess what I'm getting at is what, it, what is your reaction to like the Greta Thunbergs of the world? Like the, you know, and I love, I, I, I just want to wrap her up my arms and hug her every time I see her speak. Like, I just love her, her passion and her just, I love everything. She's so principled, right? At such a young age, it's amazing. But she is no, I mean, she gets criticized by the right all the time is like, go take a chill. Like, like go on vacation, like you're too uptight, you're too wound up, you're too angry, all this stuff. So what is the role of, how do we balance this tension between like being hope-filled and also there, like, how do we balance that between those and the moments where we just like gasp and just like let out this angry outburst of like, why aren't we doing more? Or is there ever, is there ever a place for the Greta Thunbergs in your opinion? Yes. Well, first of all, who is she calling out? She is not calling out individual average people who are just trying to get by True. in their life. True. She is Never. calling out the leaders. She is calling out the CEOs of the 20 companies that produce 30% yeah. of our carbon emissions since 1960. She's yeah. calling out the heads of the banks that produce trillions of dollars of funding to perpetuate the fossil fuel industry. She is calling out the heads of government who subsidize fossil fuels. In the United States, the tune of $650 billion a year that exceeds the Pentagon's budget. She is calling out those who have the ability to make decisions for the good of many and are not making them. And there, under those circumstances, calling out is definitely valid, in my opinion. She is not going over to her neighbor and looking in their kitchen and saying, how dare you be using these products to feed your family? She is not doing that. People might take it that way. And if they do, that's on them. And I think that's where a lot of the reaction against her comes from is because she makes people feel guilty. And what do we do when we feel guilty? 
we attack. But she points out very accurately that there is the balance of power and wealth in this world is collected in the hands of a very few who are incentivized to continue to make decisions for the benefits of a very few over the short term, as opposed to even they themselves and their families, as well as everybody else in the world over the long term. As that cartoon says, you know, a father talking to his children around the fire in a vast, desolate landscape. For a short period of time, we created enormous value for our stakeholders, but we destroyed civilization while we were at it, <laughs> right? So that's what she does. Right. So, so there's a beautiful quote from St. Augustine, or attributed to St. Augustine, that I wanted to share with you. Uh, and I use it in my book. Let me make sure I get it right for you. Um, yeah, go for it. Uh, hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Come on. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way they are. I love that. And I, yes, that quote, spot on. Your assessment of Greta, also spot on. I, and I think that's the, that is the, 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 we have to get better at making that distinction, right? Between the leader that is, that is purposefully hurting the people they took an oath to serve and protect, whether it's at, you know, at a, at a local level, federal level, world level, whatever it is, we can and should react in anger to those people that are lining their pockets. It's typically about money. It goes back to money and power, right? Um, those are the people we direct our anger at, but with the people that are in similar circumstances as us, we use, we're tender and we are, we are, you know, going back to how you proposed a few ways to approach it with our neighbors, right? That's just, that's storytelling. That's, we got to become better storytellers. And, and communicate right? love rather than judgment and acceptance rather than guilt and respect rather than disrespect and anger to each other. Because you know what, Nick, it's actually worse. Some of those companies, some of those corporations, they have actually deliberately gone out of their way to frame these issues, which include issues of um, climate change, carbon emissions, diet, and plastic pollution, as the responsibilities of the individual rather than the corporation. They yeah, have yeah. advertising campaigns, Shell, yeah. BP have advertising campaigns saying, what are you doing to reduce your emissions? Will you be getting an electric car? Will you be getting solar panels? And they paid to put yep. it into my Twitter feed. So I responded to Shell last year. I said, I'm going to hold you responsible for 2% of global carbon emissions since the dawn of the industrial era, greater than the entire country of Canada. And when you have a method to address those sufficiently, I'm happy to talk about my solar panels, my EV, my diet, my food waste. They are, it is no accident that we're obsessed with our personal carbon footprint. We are constantly yeah. bombarded with messages telling us it is all our fault. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Okay, so we've got to get better at just really it's that tension, right? How do we treat our neighbors, our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues? And then how do we direct the appropriate amount of anger to the people that are purposefully not doing the right thing? Let's wrap up with this. Uh, an important uh, wrap up to this conversation uh, because you you're a, a person of faith. You grew up in the Plymouth Brethren evangelical uh, sort of. I don't know if it's a denomination. Um, I, I have some friends growing up that were Plymouth Brethren, and so you you married a pastor. Your dad was a pastor and a science teacher as well, right? So is that correct? He was a teacher in our church. Plymouth Brethren do not have pastors. You're right, an elder, <laughs> yes. right? Right? Yeah, there's no, exactly. That's the one distinction, right? Is there's no person in charge. It's everybody coming together. So how was, because something set you up to when you were in your undergrad and you took this climate science, you know, class that you were like, okay, that's the new focus, forget everything else. So how was climate and, and how we feel about the earth and how we take care of it? All those conversations growing up in this Christian household, how was it talked about there? And how did that influence you? to prepare you for what you're now doing at a global level, really. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, to use an agricultural analogy, that that was what sort of prepared the ground. And so when yeah. that seed fell into the ground, it, it sprouted right away. Um, what prepared the ground was that I grew up in a church, in a denomination, where our what we believed was not written by our political ideology as it is for so many people today. And sure. it was not written by what we heard from the pulpit either. It was written by what we ourselves read in the Bible or what we ourselves studied or what we ourselves discussed and listened to from others, of course. Yeah. 
And so I knew from an early age that the Bible says that God gave humans responsibility over every living thing on this planet. I yeah. grew up reading and hearing um, and singing songs in Sunday school about how God cares for the smallest, most in seemingly insignificant aspects of nature. Um, when I was nine years old, uh, my parents packed up the family. We moved down to South America, where they served in the local church and as teachers in a local school for a number of years. And so I knew what poverty looked like. Um, I knew when disaster strikes, how it can wash away entire neighborhoods, how people don't have enough food to eat, how take clean, clean water coming out of the tap is something we take for granted that most people in the world do not have. I knew what that looked like. And most of all, I knew that, and these are literally Jesus's words, people who follow him are supposed to be recognized by something, not by voting Republican, not by waving judgy fingers at other people and condemning people, not by holding up signs of, of commandments people are supposed to obey and condemning them when they don't. People yep. are supposed to be recognized by one thing, which is their love for others. That is the, the principle by which I live my life. And when I learned about how climate change affects the poorest and most vulnerable people, how is climate action not an act of love? And how is ignoring climate not a failure? to love others, to love our sisters and our brothers, our neighbors right here at home, as well as those on the other side of the world, and this incredible planet that just is full of amazing life that has intrinsic value in and of itself, as well as the beauty that feeds our own souls. So yes, my background completely prepared me for it to the point where I believe that Christians would be out at the front of the line demanding climate action if they took the mm. Bible seriously. And you know who we mm. would see there at the front of the line? We would see people from all other, all different other faith traditions because every major yeah. faith tradition has every concepts of stewardship, yep. caring for creation, loving our neighbor. We would see other people, um, like my colleague who I talk in the book, who are humanists, but who care passionately about the future of other humans on this planet. We would see yeah. people who care about biodiversity and conservation. We would see people who care about justice and equity. We would see people who care about a healthy economy and national security. We would all be there at the front lines because climate change affects everything that all of us hold most dear. Incredible. Uh, the book is Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Uh, may I hire you to be my hope coach? You absolutely can, may because can, can we just be friends? Like I need sure. I need you like rooting into my ear and just being like, Nick, chill out a little bit, like more hope, more unity, because I need I need these reminders all the time. Well, I do too. And that's why I as I talk about in the book, I practice hope. Yeah. Hope is not something that just comes to us naturally if we wait for No, it it's to a show muscle, up. right? We gotta we gotta work it out so that we can flex it, right? Right. And how do we do that? We go out and we look for those hopeful stories. We look for some of those hands that are on that boulder, rolling it downhill. We add our own hand to the boulder because we find our hope in action and we use our voices to share that hope with everyone we know. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Dear friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for spending time with us this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.